Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, Anefriesian. For those of you that are new to the podcast, I have two quick favors to ask. If you're on Instagram, why don't you go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, go ahead and subscribe so you receive notifications when we release new episodes. So this episode today, we, we recorded it uh, about a month ago and I've uh, been sitting on it for a little while, but just listened to it through again and I'm so excited to get it out. I think it's, uh, it's the right time for it. I think it's going to provide a lot of value to the listeners and definitely those of you out there who are who have been listening to bootstraps and been curious how can you get involved and what are ways which you can do work to actually help the next generation of young black boys who are growing up there's gonna be a lot of great information in this episode about how to do the tangible work of youth development with black boys especially those who are born in depressed socioeconomic conditions So I'm not going to keep you too long. Let's go ahead and uh, get into the episode. Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell everybody your name and tell them what it is that you do. So my name is CJ Stewart, born and raised here in Atlanta, Georgia, hot Atlanta. Uh, And uh, quite simply, I'm a a coach. Okay. You're you're a coach. uh, So... Life coach, a career coach, uh, your athletic coach, what? So I, I left it at that just to even get that response because, you know, just even um, when we think about a coach, it, it, it does have a meaning. And sometimes I think that we don't have it clarified well enough. At least I didn't. Uh, it wasn't clarified well enough, which when people came in for career days in my school, no one, no one ever talked about being a coach. So I always kind of looked at it as being something that wasn't very important. But um, before the word coach was used in sports, it was used as a means of transportation. So what you had was you had a horse and you had a, you had a coachman who would, who would control and steer the horse. And then you had a back compartment, um, which where which is where people would rest until they got to their destination also Mm. during that time as well too especially for um, younger children when they were being transported uh, someone would be present at times to educate them and so um, that that word coach came from someone who is educating but also someone who is taking you to a destination so i do have an opportunity to coach um, through athletics uh, but also as a life coach as well. Okay. Also, your your work there in the A, which you know you probably represented off off top. Um, talk talk to me a little bit about the the coaching that you have going on, and like who who are you coaching, and what are you coaching them to do? So I have two businesses that I uh, co-founded with my uh, my wife Kelly, and uh, so our for profit business is Diamond Directors. And what Diamond Directors are focus is to provide the blueprint of success for Diamond Sport athletes. So that could be baseball and softball players. And then our nonprofit LEAD, which stands for Launch Expose Advice Direct. Uh, it is a uh, nonprofit that 501c3 that we started in 2007. And our mission is to empower an at-risk generation to lead and transform their city of Atlanta. 
and we use baseball as a vehicle to help black boys overcome three curveballs that threaten their success, which is mm. crime, poverty, and racism. Mm. And so, uh, you know, you, you can't give what you don't have. So one of the things that we had to do um, when we started Lead, we had to make sure that our for-profit business diamond directors uh, were strong because you, you, you can't have a for-profit business that is a non-profit uh, business where you're right. not making uh, money. So um, we've had our for-profit business for over two decades. And uh, since I got started, you know, my, our clientele list includes Jason Hayward, Andrew McCutcheon, wow. Kyle, Kyle Lewis, who is someone who is, um, hopefully will be rookie of the year uh, this year. Uh, Peter Alonzo, who was last year's um, home run champion and rookie of the year with the Mets. Uh, Dexter Fowler, I've coached Andrew Jones, um, wow. form, former Brave and Yankee, so Dodger. So I've been I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of amazing things throughout the for-profit business, which then allows me to be um, a trusted source for black boys who come into our nonprofit uh, lead. Wow. So, I mean, there's so much that we can dig into there, but sticking with the for-profit business for a second. So you, you've coached this amazing roster of, like, star talent. Like, these are not dudes who just, like, barely cracked into into the league and played Major League Baseball for a year or two. These are dudes who were, like, there and made a, made a mark while they were there. I mean, Andrew McCutcheon, you know, was a perennial MVP candidate. I think he won one or two MVPs, if I remember correctly. The home run kings, like, what, how did you end up in, in that position? And I, I guess the second question I have is then how do you, how do you think about taking profits from your for-profit business diamond directors to, to fund your nonprofit? Is it just a, a percentage? Like how, how do you think about balancing that ratio? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who would be interested in, you know, t- using their for-profit business to do some nonprofit work. So, First, like, how did you end up in the position to be able to coach these superstars? And then um, how do you think about taking your for-profit business to support your nonprofit? Yeah, so the for-profit business, Diamond Directors, again, the uh, our mission is to provide the blueprint of success for Diamond Sport athletes. And uh, we got to the point where we were able to do it uh, and do it well uh, by accident. Uh, my career, I... Um, was born and raised here in the inner city of Atlanta and had a dream of playing professional baseball for the Chicago Cubs when I was a child and had my first workout with the Cubs at 14, got drafted by the Cubs at 18, wow. went, to college, went to college for two years and flunked out um, both times. Uh, did great on the baseball field, but poorly in the classroom, got drafted again by the Cubs and then played in the Cubs organization uh, for, for two years. And so, um, I was not as successful as I had dreamed of becoming because of a lack of uh, core values. Uh, and just overall, there, there was just no blueprint. Um, you know, being born and raised here in Atlanta as a, as a Christian uh, and going to church, it was a lot of it was just, you know, have hope and pray, hope and pray. Uh-huh. Well, hope and prayer is not enough. Um, and so you have to have a blueprint. And so right. um, because I did not had that blueprint, I wanted to really understand um, 
where I fell short and then be able to provide that uh, to other people who were at a, a young age who wanted to aspire to, to uh, play professional baseball and do it well. So um, I got an opportunity when my career was over to start giving batting lessons in uh, East Cobb, um, Georgia, um, which is arguably one of the um, top places to play baseball in the world. Uh, it is a hotbed. Um, East Cobb baseball produces a lot of major league players. Like I said, Jason Hayward, Dexter oh. Fowler, uh, Buster Posey played at, uh, at East Cobb and got an okay. to coach him as well, but not okay. a private coach. So, uh, being here in this community, I had no idea what I was doing uh, as a coach when I first started in 98. I just wanted to make some money, and I didn't want to go to go back to college. Um, the good news is that there was no certification process to be a coach. So all you had to do was just be charismatic, on time, dependable, uh, and just make the kids laugh. That's it. And so right. as I was in there um, as a African-American coach – and young and being around a lot of other coaches who were um, for the most part, all white, except for one other gentleman, uh, Terry Harper, who played in the Braves, played major league baseball for the Braves. I, I just, I wanted to be the best. Hmm. And I started looking at <clears throat> what those guys were doing. and wasn't, wasn't doing it. And they were doing a great job, but I was like, you know, I really need to study this the way I didn't do it in college. So let me read. So I started reading more, um, and then I also had a game-changing moment where a, one of my clients came in uh, when I was very early on coaching, and I was I was telling him to do something, and he asked me why, and he wasn't being rude. He just wanted to understand why, and yeah. I couldn't I couldn't explain why he needed to do it. I was embarrassed, and I just started to dig dig deeper even more. So the the reason why I'm able to do it and and how I got to the point where I can be. Um, uh, a maven um, as a hitting coach is um, just looking at what I didn't have, what I wanted to have, but then also some a convicting moment from that that child who forced me to get better uh, to the point of you know the connection between my for profit and non profit. Um, so we don't we don't use any of the money from the for profit to support the non profit. I mean they're two very um, two very different things, totally different clientele. So my for-profit business, um, you know, if, if you don't have the funds, I mean, I, I can't, <clears throat> I can't work with you. Um, yep. And um, so with that being said, it allows me to also chunk out my services so that I could um, give you access to me for, you know, what I would call freemiums which is like blogs uh, that I post weekly all the way to group instruction where I will uh, have trained facilitators who can provide group instruction, but then to get access to me starts with an assessment. Mm -hmm. um, and then once I assess you, then I'll determine whether or not you need to do the group instruction to develop some habits or do another session with me. Because at the end of the day, um, learning how to practice and learning how to participate are mm -hmm. prerequisites to learning how to play. Yeah, so yeah. When you, come, when you come to me, I don't have time to teach you how to practice. Yep. I got to yeah. teach you how to um, how to play. Yeah, no that that makes that makes perfect sense. Like there like there's levels to this, right? And so if 
if someone's going to have access to you and they don't understand how to do the basics yet, it's like that's not the most efficient use of your time. There are other people that can help you execute the most basic fundamentals and like how to, how to practice and how to work. And then once they get through that, then they can actually take advantage of having an audience with you. Um, but there was something that you said a little while back about early on in your career, uh, one of your uh, instructees or clients asked you why, and you had a hard time explaining why. I think that I think every teacher of, of any subject goes to that moment. Like I myself was a professional martial arts instructor for a long while, and I think it was always important to understand why to do something. And there were moments early on in my career when I started teaching. They're like, yeah, I was taught to do it this way by, by my master, so this is how you do it. But then I have to start to sit and, and really meditate and come to understand why. When you understand why to do something, then it unlocks a different level of wisdom, and that, that's, that's a breakthrough you know, that, that does happen. But I think it is a part of the learning trajectory and curve of like, oh, I'm really good at something. I do it instinctively or I do it because I was just taught to do it. But you don't really understand why. And then once you figure that out, then you're capable of teaching it to someone else. You know, because you, you can package it in a way in which you can customize it to whoever it is you're trying to pass it on to. Does that make sense? It does. And, and so, you know, there are two distinctions where, you know, one is telling someone to do something and the other is teaching. So the best that I can have happen if I'm telling someone is for them to hear me. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm teaching them, they can understand me. I mean, you can't do, you can't, you can't execute if you just heard me tell you something. Yeah. If you understand it, now you can take action. And so what he did, I wish I knew his name. Uh, I forgot his name, but what he did was he, he through, through him convicting me, it unlocked my ability to start to learn so that I could teach. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that was a that was a breakthrough uh, moment for me. And then one of the other things that took me to the next level as an effective swing coach is uh, a gentleman named Ed Hartwell, who uh, played baseball at Notre Dame. And he went on to be, uh, I think it was assistant um, scouting director for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, he's an African-American man. And then he also was a um, an agent. And so he would allow me to go on the road with him sometimes. And um, they called him the deacon. I mean, he was very respected by a lot of people. And, you know, their classroom studies. But, I mean, he really taught me how to scout starting from a place of instincts. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that was very uh, liberating. And so, you know, I continued to to listen to people. And then, so I hear what they're saying. I didn't quite understand it. Uh, and, and the more and more I stayed around people and asked questions, they made things simple, I started to understand. So now I got this skill set where I can scout and I can develop players, which then allowed me to determine the value of players. Uh, mm. So that then allowed me to then also to move to a place where for two years, my wife and I um, advised players in the draft. Mm-hmm. So we had 10 players in two years. And six of them made it to the major leagues. Now I have no college degree. I'm not an attorney. Um, I'm not. I wasn't a certified agent. But I would go to these showcases and I would identify players 
um, that had some noticeable weaknesses, but, but they were there. So they obviously had a high level of talent, but scouts weren't really flocking to them nor agents. So I said, you know what, that's my guy. And so Charlie, mm. Charlie Culberson is one of them um, who actually was an impact player for the Dodgers. Uh, but I started working with him when he was 10 years old, off and on when he turned 16, just working with him just to help him be the best player he could be in high school. He expressed that he wanted to play in college. But as we continue to work, I was like, man, we need to consider playing professional baseball. Right. So that turned into, okay, so now I got to find somebody to represent you. Uh, and failing to find somebody, I believed in him, and I said I would do it. Long story short, he ended up being the 51st pick overall with the uh, San Francisco Giants. Okay. And um, in very short order, um, made it to the major leagues with the Giants, played with the Dodgers, and then recently with the Atlanta Braves. Uh, he's known as Charlie Clutch. But and then I'll just <laughs> I'll just say bringing it to to an end. You know the, the the beautiful part about being able to teach someone versus telling them is you can chunk out the the development process to then give give your clients um, the assurance of here's where you are, here's where you want to be, but then here's where you need to be. And then here's the path to do it. So again, that's what a coach right. does. If, you, if, if you're not coaching, if you can't chunk, yeah. If you can't, if you can't break the system down into part holes, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to coach. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's fair. You need to be able to develop people in stages, right? You know, it's like the the old cliche. You know, you need to crawl before you walk, walk before you run, run before you fly. You got to be able to teach people how to crawl. And then you got to be able to teach you how to walk. You can't take it from crawling to flying. And so, um, yeah, being able to understand the entire system and to break it down into digestible chunks, to use your term, to develop them is, uh, is, is definitely vital, I think, if you're, if you're in a role of developing anybody. So as we, as, we, as we get to the nonprofit side, so you've, you've had some clear – natural talent in being able to play the game. You obviously clearly have some natural talent in being able to develop people, regardless of, you know, whether you are a formal agent or not. The fact that you're able to figure out where the gaps are in the system um, and then be able to develop people to close those gaps and to go from being someone who wasn't really looked at to the 51st overall pick. Like, there's some natural skills that you have that's led you to be able to develop the successful for-profit business. And so as we move into the nonprofit, if I understood you correctly, you, you, you block out a, a chunk of your time of your available hours to then work with these at-risk youth in Atlanta. Yes. So my wife, Kelly is our COO and yeah. uh, I serve as the CEO and, and specifically for me, I'm the chief empowerment officer. And so to empower someone is to give responsibility and authority. And so what's beautiful about that is, is I don't have to spend a lot of time um, being present physically in order for our boys, black boys that are living in the inner city of Atlanta uh, to become successful. And so I would say I spent about 25% of my time in the nonprofit 
and mm-hmm. 75% of my time in the for-profit and my wife has the opposite. So she is 25% for-profit, 75% non-profit as our, our COO. And so the advantage that I have is, is again, um, you know, when it comes down to creating systems, you know, it starts with, okay, what's all the stuff. Yeah. Once we get the stuff, um, Let's make that stuff very specific. I mean, an exhausted list. Let's get down specifically to what we need to be doing. Then let's uh, sequence it. So we got to make sure now we sequence it into the steps of what we need to do. Um, and then making sure that whatever we need people to do is, is, is simple to actually do. So, you know, as the chief empowerment officer, one of the things that I really get an opportunity to do is, empower the boys to be able to coach themselves i mean when i grew up as an eight-year-old well as a kid but at eight years old when i wanted to start playing professional baseball i didn't know that if anybody was getting bad in lessons that that was something i was supposed to do i'm not sure that people were getting bad in training when you know in the let's see 76 so 80 in the in the mid 80s so right what i knew was is i got some rocks outside i got a i, don't, I didn't have a bat but i had a stick uh-huh. I'm gonna throw the ball. I'm gonna throw the rock up in the air, and then I'm gonna hit it. And if I hit it, then that was good. But if I can hit it to where I want to hit it, that's great. So, uh-huh. in in a desire to be great, I just kept throwing up the rock and pick a pick a target. So, those are the, some of the things that I focus on doing with our boys uh, that's in our organization. Um, first, getting them to a level where they can learn how to participate, which is learning how to show up. Right. And, they, and then get them to a level where they can learn how to practice, which means they can get things done without me, without a dad. If you've got a dad at home, that's great. Maybe he's working. But you can make it in life getting things done a big chunk of the time uh, by yourself. So, right. you know, just to that point, as you, you know, to your question, I don't spend a lot of my time with the nonprofit because I don't have to because black boys can learn and they do love baseball and they do want to be great leaders. Right. Yeah. It's like, and it's the, the terminology that you're using around empowerment is like you, you, you set the standard and then you give them the space to get it done. Right. And it's up because they're, they have to have a certain amount of agency in their own life to be able to go and do the work. You can't just like do it all for them. You know, I, that's look back to my mother. She raised single moms, raised three boys, all three of us uh, are not just college graduates. All three of us have master's degrees. And I say that as a, as a point of pride for my mother because of the way in which she raised us. She, did, she didn't have time to micromanage us. She was working two jobs. We spent a lot of time by ourselves or on our own. But she empowered us. She set expectations, very, very clear expectations and really firm consequences. But then she wasn't there all the time, making sure that we did all the stuff we were supposed to do. Like we'd see her in the morning and she was like, this is what I expect you for you to have done by the time I get home from work. Right. And so the, we were taught how to do what we needed to do. We were, the expectations were made clear and then we were empowered to get it done. And so I think the, the way in which you were, the way in which you have structured your program around your nonprofit I think it's actually setting the boys up for success because you can't you can't hold their hands. You can't infantilize them. 
so yeah, to speak. You've got to have a system that will allow them to be successful. And I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things when you talk about agency, that, that starts for us at a place of participation. You're going to learn the agency that you need in our phase of teaching you how to participate. If you already know how to participate and we don't have to teach you because it can be taught, um, then, then you move on to now learning how to practice. Right. If you know how to practice, then we can move on to now learning how to play. And so when you're playing baseball, you're basically testing in a game what you've been working on in practice, which is the same thing even for any kind of job you're going to have. And even if you go to college, I mean, you go to college and you you spend all this time, but you still have to be able to test it. And hopefully in in an internship or apprenticeship environment, because once you get that job, if you're not ready, you're going to get fired. And so then once they learn how to play, now we move to the level where now it's time to l- learn how to perform. At the performance level, we're not talking about talent. We're not talking about good habits. We're talking about skills. Skills pay the bills. And at that performance level, I define skills as things that you do well repeatedly without fault while under stress. Uh, uh. I'm Right now, I'm going through a process of um, I, I, I purchased a handgun. And um, so I've been I've been going to classes. I've gone to the range, going to the range and shooting was a disaster uh, because I really just didn't have the fundamentals that I needed. Even in the first class that I went to, it was it was pretty rushed. But but getting that experience coupled with some information is now knowledge. So I got some knowledge. And so now I have I have another gentleman that's working with me on uh, proper sight alignment. Uh, for my gun. So even when I get to the point where I'm proficient and I can pass the test on that, that's still very different than now somebody breaking into my house and I actually mm. got to shoot you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very, very real pressure burst pipes. Right. So it's like, I mean, growing up playing sports of all types or, you know, there's so many other situations I've seen this as well, but you can have that person that was really great in practice and then you get into the game you get into the real situation, and they buckle. Or in you know martial arts, I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't see plenty of martial artists actually get into a situation, you know, out in society, and not not be able to handle like the pressure of a real moment. Right? It's one thing in, if you're inside the studio training. Uh, it's, it's another thing when there's somebody who who has uh, has real real bad intentions for you and you don't know them that creates a certain amount of pressure and anxiety. Can you not perform? Do you have the skill to be able to deal with the, the situation? That makes, that makes perfect sense. But a, a question that's been bouncing around my head and I actually grew up, I, I played baseball. I played baseball from six years on and then uh, finally stopped playing in high school because I also played basketball and football. Um, but baseball is a huge part of my development. I love playing baseball. I still watch baseball. I'm actually a San Francisco Giants fan. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Buster Posey. He helped, uh, he helped bring some championships into my life because, you know, being a Giants fan growing up in Los Angeles uh, led to a whole lot of ridicule. So, uh, but the, the question I wanted to get to is how are you getting black boys to want to play baseball, participate in your program through baseball? That seemed like that would be the initial barrier when you look at the way in which it's been talked about. Oh, black kids, you know, don't want to play baseball anymore. Baseball in the black community has been contracting ever since like the 70s. 
So how are you getting black boys uh, to play baseball? So just even in that question right there and really slowing it down and chunking it out, you know, is, is, is how, how, how means that is there a method and then you, you as in me, um, and, and then getting them to play. So, so for me, I am really good as a coach skill level under stress. I develop studs and I got a blueprint uh, to do it. I'm unapologetic with it. Um, you put me in the room, even with the best coaches um, in the world, I'm going to be able to hold my own. And I don't have to be number one. I just got to be um, effective. And so, so starting with that, me coming into the inner city, me again, me, I'm from, the, I'm from Atlanta. And I'm not focused on any boys outside of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Very narrow focus. I'm not focused on boys from San Francisco. I'm not focused on boys from Brooklyn, Atlanta, Georgia, and specifically the inner city of Atlanta where I'm from. I, I made it out. There was no blueprint uh, for me to make it out, but I did make it out. There were people in my life, including my parents, people in my church that were a part of it. But those, I, I mean, they... I didn't see the blueprint. So um, the Latin word for passion is suffering. So what I suffer from is just not having a blueprint. And now I have a blueprint um, through trial and error and so on and so forth. So you ask, how am I able to help these black boys play? It starts with me. And I'm going to take the credit and God gets the glory. Um, And so... When I show up, I, I have a five-point plan, and I'm going to start with number two and then go to five, and then I'll come back to what number one is. The five-point plan number two is I got to teach them how to participate. That's that's that agency. I got to create oh. experiences for them to get that, that self-agency, that self-identity, uh, that self-management, social-emotional learning. Then I'm going to teach them how to practice, which is number three of the five-point plan. Then I'm going to teach them how to play, which is number four. And then I'm going to teach them how to perform, which is number five. And if they get to that level of performance, now you are in front of college coaches. Now you are in front of professional scouts. But even if it doesn't work out for that on baseball, now you're in front of the CEO of Georgia's own credit union. You're in front of Aaron Sebron from from Adidas. Um, Mm -hmm. You're in front of Nick. So I have a great network of people that I can put them in front of, but I got to make sure they're able to perform. So number two, participate three practice four play five perform number one i am a protector the tip of the spear on my five point plan so when you ask me how that is my that is my process for progression to performance it starts with me the tip of the spear i am a protector my my last name stewart means household protector Uh and so but you can't get what you don't have So my life experience has gotten me to a place and convicting moments have gotten me to a place where I know what the hell I'm doing. And so well that I, that I can able, I'm able to empower others to do the same thing as a coach that, that doesn't involve me having to be in person all the time. So God forbid, if I die today, my legacy will be able to continue. It is in writing. I have demonstrated it. 
Mm-hmm. And I stay away because if I got to be here, you ain't going to make it because I'm not showing up every day. So anyway, right. that's so let me ask you this because I can get to rambling. When you ask me how do you get black boys to play baseball, for, yeah. for me breaking that down, what, 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 what resonates with you, how I do it? So I, I think the first bit, you know, in, in the you being a, a protector, because um, I always want, want I always want to understand like what is what is this first step, right? Because if if you look at if you accept it as true that black boys played a whole lot of baseball, and then at some point interest started to wane in most black communities across the country, and so that's because you requires a baseball diamond and a lot of equipment. So as people divested in the inner city. You know, it just stopped being as attractive of a thing or whatever it may be. Availability kind of leads to interest. But then as someone who grew up playing baseball, I, I know that there's nothing particularly culturally about baseball that, that alienates black people. Right. It, I, re, I remember growing up in a neighborhood where all the black kids played baseball. Um, so. It's like I was curious about what was it that you did to gain their interest, and so what I what I heard in your response is one is your bona fides, right? Like, like you are like you are not somebody who's just like just saying you know some things, you know some things, but the protective piece really popped because like, look, I can actually offer you safe haven from the chaos you may be living in or at least that is living around you, I can offer you a safe haven from that. that that's, that's what I got from what you said. Yes. And then I also want to just speak to the cultural piece because, you know, for us in our organization, um, we, we, it's a year round and it's a phased approach. And um, so we have four phases of development. <clears throat> and again, so our, we use baseball as a vehicle to help black boys overcome crime, poverty, and racism. Um, and then, you know, in the name lead, launch, expose, advise, direct. We're, we're launching educational opportunities. And so for some, that means um, using baseball to develop them so they can go to college as a student or a student athlete or go to the military or become um, an entrepreneur uh, and, and, and start being gainfully employed immediately after high school. Um, and so then we're, we're exposing them to um, this city of Atlanta, which is a great place um, that gives them a sense of investment and belonging. And we want to start in Atlanta because, quite frankly, I believe that, uh, you know, um, because of such an influence in Atlanta of a lot of different things, call it the CDC, the CNN, Delta. I mean, you literally can touch the world from Atlanta. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, um, so we're, we're exposing them to the city, give them a sense of belonging um, and investment. And then we're, we're advising them uh, about the process to go to college or go to the military, even though I wasn't in the military, but we're we're advising that based on experiences that my wife and I have had, uh, but giving them really sound advice, not only for them, but their parents and their coaches and, um, and others within their family. And then the last part is the D. We're directing them using the legacy of past legends. So this is 2020. And this is the 100-year anniversary of the Negro Leagues. Mm. I mean, black people have been playing baseball since slavery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
Rube Foster, who is the founder of the Negro Leagues, um, he he coined a phrase that was um, turned into a book by Kadir Nelson. It's, and it's, it's a book that inspired me to do uh, lead. But it's, we are the ship, all else is the sea. We mm. are the ship. All mm. else is the sea. And so when you think about that, we, we're talking about the Negro Leagues is the ship and the white Major League Baseball is the sea. We are going to ride on top of the white Major Leagues. <clears throat> so when he was saying that, that definitely had, hadn't happened and it's still not happening now. However, night games were invented in the Negro Leagues. So hmm. the Negro Leagues was making more money than the white major leagues because they were getting the gate in the day and the night because they couldn't play in front of mixed races. So, you know, black race, and you play a day game in front of them, white at night. White hmm. during the day, black at night. So just doing that, they were making more money. And they were better because they're playing more. Um, batting helmets were invented in the Negro Leagues. Hmm. Catcher's equipment was invented in the Negro Leagues. So in the Negro Leagues, you know, and, and for all intents and purposes, for people that may think that black people are just uncivilized and whatever, uh, we're playing in the Negro Leagues with catcher's gear and batting helmets, but in the white major leagues, there's no catcher's gear or batting helmets. And when, when they finally got it, they got it from us. Right. So even right now, when you go to a night game in San Francisco, the San Francisco Giants playing against the Dodgers, you wouldn't have that without the Negro Leagues. Right, right, right. And that's, you know, that's innovation, you know, that's being brought to bear. That's ingenuity, figuring out a problem or understanding a problem, figuring out a, a creative solution to it. Yes. I, and then, you know, as much as, you know, I thought that I was read up on sports and black history. You know, I just got a very powerful lesson. Those three factors you just dropped, I didn't know any of them before this conversation. And it's, and it's important to know it so that way we can see our place in it because even during the time of the Negro Leagues, you know, the Negro Leagues and the, the church, the black church, were two of the top black-owned businesses, if not one and two, um, mm -hmm. in the black community. And so um, when the Negro Leagues... Um, was broken apart, then you got one of the largest black owned businesses that now no longer exists. And so when you think about a black, when you think about the Negro leagues, you got booming hotels as a result mm -hmm. of that, restaurants, these players were dressed to the nine. I mean, so mm -hmm. that's clothes, um, transportation, um, the vast majority of Negro League players were college educated because they, they went to historically black colleges. Uh, as opposed to the white major leagues, many of those many of those guys were not college educated. Some, but not, I would argue, not more than the uh, the Negro League. So it's it's a it's a booming business associated with baseball. And when when African Americans would leave church, it was common practice to leave church. And then go to the baseball field to watch your family members, the men. I mean, your ability to become a man was attached to your ability to play baseball. Football was not an option. Basketball mm. was not an option. And lastly, before I just bust wide open on this, blacks were, were playing, slave plantations were playing against slave plantations. White men were not out here playing baseball. 
the slaves were playing against each other. And so the 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 irony and the I'm trying to think of another word, but the, but the irony that we're trying to get black boys to play baseball where we right. are the, we are the ship, right, right. That that's a that's a very interesting like historical context about how things. There's so much to say, right? So in terms of um, gentrification, right? Like you can gentrify a neighborhood. You also can gentrify a, a, a sport, but also you think about how we had, you know, there's this interesting tension around integration, right? Because integration is absolutely morally the right thing to do as opposed to like for, over forced segregation based upon the color of your skin. But then with that, there are some businesses that kind of went away. And if the Negro Leagues were kind of a foundation, foundational business in the black community with integration, you know, that, start, that business starts to get weakened and eventually gets wiped out. And then all of the businesses that were built around the Negro Leagues. You start talking about the hotels and the restaurants and the the tailors and all the clothing and apparel shops. Those all then start to go away. Yep. Yeah. So let's let's take a let's take a step back though. So like you you've you've had this amazing and you're not had, you're still on this amazing run in your in your career, in your life and you're making this amazing impact in your hometown of Atlanta. So we know where you're from. Why don't we go back and I want to I want to talk about, you know, your childhood to kind of understand what it was like for you growing up and what turned you into you. So what what part of Atlanta did you grow up in and uh, what was your childhood like? So I grew up in northwest Atlanta, which is, um, you know, known as um, Bankhead, uh, the Bankhead community. And then you can zero in even more to um, call it um, Hollywood Road, Zone 1. Um, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot of that terminology when you listen to, um, you know, Killer Mike mm-hmm. um, and um, T.I. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them are from Bankhead, Zone 1. And uh, so my mom and dad have been in my life all of my life. My mom was 16 years old when she had me. My dad was uh, 21. And uh, my mom graduated from um, Washington High School at 16. And um, Washington High School um, is the same high school that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. went to. Um, okay. It's the same school where we host our, um, our programming for LEAD as well, too. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing place. And uh, so, again, my mom and dad both have been in my life all of my life. And so starting out, um, because there was no inheritance of money from either side of my family, uh, both, you know, large large amounts of people in the family, both of my grandmothers had, you know, several children. And, um, and so, you know, but it's not like I had a grandfather or a great grandfather or a great, great grandfather who passed down all this money. So, you know, my mom and dad, um, you know, we, there, there was a level of financial poverty, uh, that I was born into, uh, you know, however, my mom and dad have been, uh, hardworking all of their lives, uh, and made things happen, um, which is something that I've seen throughout my entire family. So <clears throat> where there was a, a lack of funds, um, there was no lack of um, support. I don't remember ever uh, waking up without the lights on. I don't remember ever not having food um, mm-hmm. to eat or anything like that. However, um, 
my surrounding community had a lot of people that had that. And if it did happen, I just don't remember. I doubt it because my mom and dad were just, they would uh, make things happen. So we, we moved uh, into a house for the first time still in Northwest Atlanta. Um, I guess around uh, maybe, let's see, maybe eight, nine or 10 or so. And okay. uh, so we moved into that house, you know, it was kind of like, man, you know, we, we, we made it, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but my, my parents were gradually moving from, you know, the poverty class to the working class. And hmm. so I got an opportunity to experience that. And, you know, we would, we would go, um, you know, to Disney world and Hilton head and all of that good stuff. But, and, and, you know, from what I saw, from a lot of my classmates, you know, there, there was, there were some people struggling, but there were some people that were still able to be exposed and do some things. Uh, I was that kid though, that was um, dressed, you know, preppy, you know, I would wear the Izod shirts, the khaki pants, the penny <laughs> loafers. And so my mom and, and dad, um, I, I would say my mom probably dressed me more than, uh, my dad, but you know, they had this, this aspiration of me being able to do great things. I, I think that I was probably on a track that was more um, academia than athletics because, you know, the, the thought of being a black man as an athlete and being financially um, solvent was, was not something that was happening, even though Hank Aaron was here in Atlanta and was making a lot of money with the Braves, but it wasn't like it was widespread and he wasn't making millions of dollars per year. So right. It was like, you know, Hey, you know, go to Morehouse college, um, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer. I didn't want to do any of that. I wanted to play baseball and I just didn't have it framed for me that you can do both. Ironically though, Jackie Robinson was born in Cairo, Georgia. And then you got Dr. King who was born in Atlanta, Georgia. These are two men that I aspire to be, but they were in my eyes separate. Huh. But they actually, Dr. King needed Jackie Robinson on several occasions to uh, help raise funds, to, to get folks out of jail. Uh, you know, talk about Jackie Robinson going to Albany, Georgia and, and many other places to, um, get people to turn out to protest. Um, and so if I, in, in having to choose between the two, uh, academia, which is Dr. King and athletics, Jackie Robinson, I, I wanted to be Jackie Robinson. Yeah. I wanted to play baseball, but now I get an opportunity to live this life, life at 44 years old where I'm actually both. I'm both men. I get an opportunity to live. So when I, when it, this could come off as arrogant. I don't feel in my heart it is. Uh, I, I just really believe that my success positions me to to serve others, which makes me significant. And mm -hmm. you, these black boys is living in the inner city of Atlanta, where I was born and raised, get a chance to see both of those men through me. Yeah, and I'm I not going apolog to apologize about that. Yeah, and then nor should you, man. Just be be on be on your journey, um, and. You know, what I hear in that, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. So if you, you know, have that balance right in your heart where you, you, you aspire to have significance for the sole purpose of being able to impact and serve others, then 
you know, I don't, I don't see how that can be a bad thing or a wrong thing. You know, and and it, they don't have a problem with it. That's their problem. Well, and especially these days from a race standpoint, I mean, I know for me, when I grew up, I mean, I don't remember having conversations with my parents where they said, you know, hate white people. And I don't, I don't remember them saying bad things about white people, but I, but if, if you're paying attention, you see that white people are living a better life than black people. Yeah. My grandmother was a domestic worker and she, um, she, you know, she, she would stay, you know, days, if not weeks at a time to take care of, um, white children. I remember in, in the Buckhead community, which is a very, um, um, profitable, um, um, prosperous, affluent. affluent, prosperous area of Atlanta. And I remember she came home, uh, one time and she gave me some shorts and some shirts and it had, um, love it on it. L O V E T T. And they were Navy blue and it had white writing. I'll never forget that. <clears throat> and, um, so I would wear those shorts and stuff like that. And it, it eventually at some point grew out of it. it. It wasn't like it was my favorite clothes to wear, but nonetheless, it was some shorts. I can get dirty and <clears throat> fast forwarding. Um, love it. The love it school in Atlanta denied Dr. King's son, Martin Luther King Jr. No, Martin Luther King, the third denied him admission into their school. Mm. And so they have a letter even at the, uh, the, the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta of the letter. Mm. My, my daughter, McKenna, is an eighth grader right now at Lovett. She's one of the top tennis players there, and she was on the principal's list uh, last year, in her first year at Lovett. So, you know, it's like even right now for my daughter, even in this racial climate, she is safe at that school, even if something racial happened, because her mom and dad are going to protect her immediately. Yeah. yeah. It ain't going to be a committee meeting. We're going to be able to show up, have the right thing to say, do the right thing, be angry, and we're going to act out of our anger. Even God was angry at times. Mm. Um, the, the Bible um, uh, speaks speaks to that. And so you know, I, I just I say all of that, um, you know, to say is, I've, you know, the, again, the Latin word for passion is suffering. So there were some things that I've suffered from, some things that I saw. And today, like when I was a kid, it still existed. If something is done right, then it was probably done by someone who was white. Yeah, that's an interesting loop, though, if you think about your grandmother being a domestic and bringing you home, I'm assuming it's a secondhand pair of shorts. Yes. From, from the Lovett School. And then you come all the way around, and now your grandmother's great-granddaughter is now a student there and thriving. Right? And you start talking about intergenerationally what can be done. And this is this is... At its essence, that's bootstraps, right? So bootstraps, the reason why the podcast is named that, to be quite clear, it's to play on this, what I fundamentally believe is a racist trope, that black people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's like, that's not even the way. It takes money to make money. You have to have that seed capital. If you don't, then you have to work extra hard, and you need a lot of assistance from other people. 
So for me, that assistance came in the form of big extended family, grandma, aunts, uncles, cousins, um, as well as a public education system. Because I've only gone to public school my entire life. So if I happen to live in an area where public education was piss poor, then I would have never gotten a good education. So one could say... Peace, everyone. We have been having some technical difficulties uh, with this recording, but felt the story is so great. Needed to get it out to you all. So I apologize for the clicking noise through the front half of it. And then um, the bad Wi-Fi connection has led to uh, a drop in the call. So we had to break it up and pick the conversation back up. So let's get into the second half of it. All right, everybody, welcome back to this episode. We had a bit of a technical difficulties. We got it. We got it ironed out. So where we were in a conversation was I was making this really interesting connection between the story CJ was walking us through where his grandmother was a domestic and, you know, she would bring him home secondhand clothes, you know, from a family that I'm assuming had kids attended the Lovett school or whatever it may be. And now her great granddaughter is at the Lovett school and thriving. And for me, like that is the essence of bootstraps. And I named the podcast this because that's how far we have to travel on average, just as black people, because we have been disproportionately impoverished, but it's, it's called bootstraps to actually play on the racist trope that, if black people don't make it, it's because they didn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And so it's this double entendre or double meaning because we it takes money to make money. Mm. Right? And if and if if you if you don't have it, then you had a lot of support along the way to be able to make it. So no one makes it by themselves. You don't actually pull yourself up by your bootstraps as an individual. Like in my situation as a as a proxy, and you can look at your situation as well in the story you've told, there's a lot of people who were around. It was grandparents, it was aunts, it was uncles, it was your parents, it was your cousins, it was other people in the neighborhood. Like I had the Tuckers who lived next door in, uh, to us in the neighborhood where I grew up, you know, they used to look out for us and look out for me. And there were just so many people who were involved and you add on top of that, I only went to public school growing up. So if I lived in an area where the public schools were piss poor, then I would have never gotten a good education. I wouldn't have been able to pull myself up by my bootstraps, quote unquote, because the quality of the education would have just been horrible. But luckily, there were really good public schools in the part of L.A. where I grew up that I was luckily zoned to be able to go to these schools. So there's this, there is this amazing hard work we have to do. There's a lot of effort for individuals like yourself to be able to go from the financial situation you were born into to the situation you're in now. And so that is the, the, a part of the bootstrap journey that is about effort, that is about intellect, that is about resilience and overcoming and persistence in the face of oppression. And the three things that you're working on, right? It's like, crime, poverty, and racism, like overcoming those things, that is definitely a part of the bootstrap journey. But the other piece is 
we don't ever do it by ourselves. We need a lot of help and support. But if we have that mentality to help and support each other, and if we have that mentality of putting that effort and that work in, you can have an arc of a story where going from your grandmother to your daughter, I think is one of the most compelling and inspiring stories that there is to tell. Well, and I just want to just share, I mean, I, th- I think one of the things we got to do a better job of as African-Americans is literally making sure that there's a carved out blueprint for success and, you know, helping, helping, helping our children and our people understand, okay, here's where you are, here's where you want to be, <clears throat> but then also here's where you need to be and having a step-by-step process that's what i suffer from is that i i had these people but i didn't have the dots connected and god has allowed mm-hmm. me to live long enough but for me as a coach you know and i get people where they are the first thing that i'm trying to figure out is is okay what is success and i'm defining that as your achievement of a goal so we'll just take one specific goal all right so success is that then the second thing i'm asking is how will you use that success to at least help a thousand people? Mm. All right. So, so now you're, now you're significant. So, so you're successful and then you're black. We ain't got time to be getting good for you. I, that frustrates me when people tell me, Hey, good for you. Um, Cause I'm not just, I'm not, I'm not gaining success for me. Everything I've ever wanted to do as a child I've done. So I'm good. Right now, I'm using my success to serve others. So once I find out what you want to do, success, and then I need to know how are you going to use that to help a thousand people. And then once I have that, then the question is, what are you doing right now that is stupid that will prevent you from being successful? And so I'm defining stupidity as knowing the right thing to do but not doing it. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing that is stupid? Okay. So then once I get that, then it is, okay, what are you struggling with that will prevent prevent you from being successful? And so I'm defining struggle as the process of achieving a goal, Uh but having setbacks due to mistakes made out of ignorance. So I I just don't, I don't, I don't know better. Being, being ignorant and stupid are, are two things, two separate things. You are very, you, when you know better, some people don't know better. So anyway, then now what I'm doing with these black boys, but just even anybody who, I mean, I've had an opportunity to coach, be a part of coaching and, and mentoring politicians, pastors, um, other coaches has been really good. But what I'm starting everybody else with it, start everybody with is stupidity, struggle, success, significance. And the bridge between you being stupid and stuck to struggling is humility, not thinking less than of yourself, but thinking of others mm-hmm. more than yourself. So I love it. So people can be successful, but you 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 damn near gotta be lucky enough to get a good coach to help you see where you are and then where you need to be. Yeah. And so to pl- play back what I just heard, you know, stupidity is you know, you, you want one outcome. But the things you're doing, none of them lead to that outcome. No, right? and you're like, knowingly doing wrong things. Right, knowingly, right. That's like I, I, I want to, I want to, you know, have a nice, you know, stable, successful life. Yet, 
you're out here doing wild things in the street. Those who one those, those actions don't lead to the other, and you know they don't lead to the other. So that's that's stupidity. Then when you move beyond stupidity, then, yeah, you have to have humility, right? Because you have to sit there and acknowledge, like, well, hell, I don't, I don't know how to do the things that lead to that. Matter of fact. I don't even know what I don't know, right. which is a very humbling moment, right? But if you're able to acknowledge that, then you're, you're able to be taught and you can start to learn. And then once you learn, success becomes, it becomes a, a, a function of, you know, effort at that point, once you start to learn. So you lead to success. And then ultimately, once you're successful, what then becomes your impact? How do you give back? How, how do you actually um, become an asset to the community as opposed to just someone who's been helped along the way. Now you've made it, and you're just going to think about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's impressive. So as as you go through your your childhood, you know you you drop some some bits, right? So your family starts to make some progress. You know your 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 parents move into the working class. You really realize like baseball is your thing and what you want to do. And you spend a lot of time refining your skills. You know, going out hitting rocks with sticks and and getting to a level to where. I'm going to not just hit this rock with this stick. I'm going to hit this rock with this stick and hit it to where I want it to go, right? So really refined hand-eye coordination, really refined um, ability to, to, to strike a round object with a cylindrical object, which is, has been said to be the hardest thing to do in sports. And so you, you end up coming through your, your high school years. Let's, let's talk about how do you – Come into contact with the Cubs. Was it was sixteen when you had your first workout with the Cubs. Talk us through how do you how do you how do you get into your your early like baseball career. So my first workout with the Cubs is fourteen years old, and then even, fourteen, yeah, fourteen, and then even you know with that. So I got an, I'm, I'm hitting these rocks with sticks and hitting targets, and then um, my mom and aunts and dad and everybody you know. Um, paved the way for me to be able to go play baseball at the Cascade Youth Organization, uh, which is CYO, which was in Southwest Atlanta, not far from my grandmother's house. This is where I'm hitting the rocks and all this stuff. And in Southwest Atlanta, uh, you probably hear about, you know, the SWATs, the SWATs, ATL. And um, so Cascade Youth Organization was awesome. I get over there. I'm nervous because now I'm actually playing catch with a, a ball and glove and other boys are throwing the ball hard. They've been playing since T-ball. I'm right. eight. They've been playing since five. And I was very fortunate I got on the right team. Uh, I was on the Braves, the CYO Braves, and my um, two of my coaches were Emmett Johnson and Jonathan uh, – I'm sorry, not Jonathan, Joshua Butler. Okay. Emmett Johnson was the chairman of the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education. Um, that is a powerful position. Um, the the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education manages more money than our Atlanta City Council. Uh, wow. And so uh, being with him continued to produce fruit even when we started LEAD, which allowed us to, to become a partner of Atlanta Public Schools decades later. And right. I still talk to him even to this day. So. Uh, but then Joshua Butler was a uh, art teacher at um, Benjamin Elijah Mays. Benjamin Elijah Mays was uh, was an Atlanta Public Schools um, board chairman, and he was also um, the president at Morehouse College. 
And quick story about that. I, I heard a story where, um, you know, World War II, there, um, you know, people are being drafted to go into the war. And he was the president of Morehouse College. And, you know, the, the threat that black men are going to be drafted to the war could have resulted in Morehouse College closing down. And mm. so it's like, you know, what do we do? Because if, 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 if this school closes, it may never be able to reopen. It may never be able to pick, you know, regain that momentum. Right. So as the story was told, he had the idea, why don't we look throughout high schools in Atlanta and then the South to find boys who are age 14 um, that can enroll in college? who have the, the, the acumen, um, the intelligentsia to, to actually go into college. And Dr. King ended up enrolling at age 15. Mm. And then also Maynard Jackson, who was Atlanta's first black mayor, and he was the first um, black mayor of any major city. I'm not, I forget what age, but he was also a teenager. So, um, along, uh, so Benjamin Elijah Mays, um, this is the school where Joshua Butler was an art teacher. So all of this history in Atlanta, but what was really cool was these are my coaches. So this, despite my, my family um, circumstance, these are, these are black men, college graduates um, who are, are moving through life, um, you know, middle class. And so my family was able to tap into that and borrow that through this baseball uh, as a child, I mean, you'll love this, but I mean, this is true. Like we would have our um, opening day ceremonies and games. It was not uncommon to see Maynard Jackson at the field. This is little baseball. Wow. Congressman right. John Lewis, who at the time was on the Atlanta city council. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, let's see, Hosea Williams. Uh, wow. Um, Ralph, um, Ralph David Abernathy. Wow. Uh, Hank Aaron, Andrew Young, like these, they lived in this community. So they had relatives and friends. So on a Saturday and weekday, you going out to the park. I mean, black, I mean, what thriving community don't have black kids playing sports? And we weren't playing, we played some football, but it wasn't that big of a deal. And we definitely were not playing basketball. I, I didn't even see a basketball registration ever. Uh, as a child growing up. So it was all baseball. So had that. And then when we moved from um, the apartments that we lived in on Hollywood Road, Hollywood Brooks, into our house on Collier Drive, um, and then we end up moving, um, spent some time living with my, my grandmother so that my parents can save money to, you know, one day get this dream house. And so, you know, going through that process, we, we end up um, being able to move to College Park. Um, and then ultimately I graduated from uh, Westlake High School. But going into, you're going to love this story as well too, uh, going into my freshman year of high school at Westlake, there was a, a, a man named T.J. Wilson who was an Atlanta Police Department officer who had a daughter at the school, I guess she was probably a junior. And so he would be at the school supporting her. I think she was a cheerleader, but he also had a middle school age son that was going to be coming to the school, you know, in the next year or two. So 
him being at the baseball field, he met me, he saw me. I'm six foot tall. I'm about 175, you know, lean. I look good in a baseball uniform, even even though I may not have been amazing, but I look good just and so as I was telling him what I wanted to, you know, do in baseball, and it he next thing I know, I'm getting batting lessons in Forsyth County. And I got to work out with the Cubs. All of this is happening within about, you know, six to eight months to me meeting this man. Now, do, do you know much about Forsyth County? Okay, I so Forsyth not. County is, uh, is a, it was a huge area for uh, Ku Klux Klan uh, rallies mm. and Hosea Williams, who was a civil rights leader. I remember as a child seeing him on there on television along with um, um, Coretta Scott uh, King and other leaders, this is a child on Channel 2 News, and they had rocks thrown at them. The Klan was out there. And I'm just like, man, that is, like, terrible. But I'm saying to myself, I don't have to worry about that because I'll never go to Forsyth County. Black people aren't welcome there. But right. I, I developed this relationship with T.J. Wilson, and now I'm 14 years old getting bad lessons in Forsyth County with Denny Pritchett. In a facility, wow. I don't see any other Black people in there other than me. And all of these white boys and white men, some some guys in there played professional baseball, some in the major leagues. And I'm I'm there on a weekly basis. I do my workout with the Cubs. Um, Preston Douglas was my scout. And I was at free workouts because travel baseball and showcases was not an option. So major league teams, they would have free agent uh, free agent workouts to fill rosters after the draft. So they would come through Atlanta. So anyway, I, I, I worked out with the Cubs every year. By the time I was 18, it was a no-brainer that I was going to get drafted. But let me just go ahead and also just one more thing about T.J. Wilson, which is so amazing. And it's a part of even my what I'm able to do. He's now since passed. Uh, may he rest in peace. And he, t- he told the story of – well, actually, I'm sorry, he didn't even tell us. I, I had the story told that – he was an APD officer. He's in Atlanta in an apartment complex. A bunch of boys are around. He drives away from them. I'm imagining, I don't know, hundred yards away. And he hears a boom and turns around to see that his back window is busted. So he doesn't know if it's a gunshot or what it is. Uh, turns out it was a rock. So, he drives around assuming that, you know, one of the boys that was in the crowd threw the rock, he catches one of them. And at this point, as I'm telling the story one day that the, the man who I'm going to reveal who threw the rock, he actually confirmed that this was a true story. And so uh, he catches one of the boys, finds out who threw the rock, goes to the apartment complex of the boy who threw the rock. His parents opened the door. He tells them what has gone on and gives them the option of having that having this boy play baseball for him, T.J. Wilson, at the park in exchange for him not making them pay to have his window replaced. So if your son play for me, you don't have to pay to have his window replaced. And so they agree to let the kid play for him, and it is Marquise Grissom. <laughs> and, and, uh, so... What a great so TJ Wilson, that was him. I mean, he was just he 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 just not only could he see talent, 
but he also provided the resources so that you can develop the habits, you know, because you, you can't just hope and pray that you got to actually have mm-hmm. bank balls to hit. Yeah. Facilities to go train, uh, places to test it out. And then, and then now, once you got to a skill level, he wasn't very, he wasn't um, that much involved because he never played professional baseball. But he would have you with the people that could bring out those skills in you. And that's what he did on a routine basis. And so that's what I'm, I'm doing as well. Unfortunately, um, I got drafted out of high school, um, had a full scholarship to play at Georgia State University, chose to go to Georgia State rather than HBCUs because I was afraid of being um, disciplined by black men. So I chose to go to Georgia State where I felt like even with my bad habits, not drugs or alcohol, but just time management and being lazy. You know, I felt like playing for a white coach um, would have made life easier for me and um, just not being able to have that connectivity with, with Coach Mike Curse at Georgia State. I ended up flunking out. I mean, he was on me really, really hard, but I just I just didn't have I didn't have the kind of support that I probably would have needed from a black man that was a coach. So flunked out, did well on the field, transferred to the Cab Junior College to play for Tom Kentrell, white man, good man, flunked out of there as well, got drafted again by the Cubs, played two years in the Cubs organization and did not get the best out of myself because of the same thing that caused me to struggle in college, a lack of core values. Um, poor self-identity, a lack of self-confidence based on really having some context about how I overcame challenges beyond just hope and prayer. And so, um, but when my career was over, I had developed so many great relationships that even right now, I'm still in touch with a lot of my, my former managers, hitting coaches, and all of these men just tell me, man, you could have been great, but you just lacked focus and discipline. And so I live vicariously through other people, especially black boys, and giving them what I did not have because of stupid things that I was doing, but also giving them what I did not have because of struggles that I had because of ignorance. So... Right. And it's, it's, it sets you up to now have your impact, right? Like if you, if you would have gone down this particular path, you know, maybe you could have had a great playing career for yourself. And who knows where that would have led in your personal development. Whereas having gone through what you went through, you're now in a place to have reached success, but then to turn that success into impact for a thousand other people, right? Which is the work that you're doing now. So you know, life life works out the way in which it's supposed to, by and large. Uh, at least, at least for a lot of us, it seems like um, you you seem to be on on that list of people in which there was there was something else that was destined for you. Um, but before before I let you get out of here, I gotta get I gotta get four questions from you. Uh, the the first of which is, can you tell me a time in which they went low, meaning anyone went low? But you took the high road, um, and the fact that you took the high road, it was in your best interest. Uh, and so when we say they, um, 
that's just anybody that's causing me harm in general or can I, okay yeah um so race matters and we live in a racialized country and um uh, a white man who i know knew very well um we were working together we had a working relationship and um we were talking about race and he was making the choice to, you know, try to leave the conversation. And, you know, I just felt like, you know, we we needed to have dialogue about race dialogue, not to the point of, we got to agree. Unlike a discussion where we need to come to some agreement, we're having a dialogue, you know, we're going and, and it was very civil and he was, he was trying to lead a conversation and I was trying to keep him in. And then finally he just, uh, he said, fuck you. And um, mm. I mean, truly the Holy Spirit was with me because my my go high when he went low was calm, um, silence. I gave it some thought and I just, for me, I understood that he was trying to escape. Um, there was nothing else productive that could come out of it. Um, you know, moving forward, I mean, we haven't um, we haven't reconciled, but I don't even I don't see the need, and it's okay. But if I would have gone low, and because I know how to cuss, <laughs> um, uh-huh. if I would have, if I would have gone <laughs> low with him, I, I think it would have you know not only hurt my my witness. Uh, as a as a follower of Christ, but I think it would have hurt me personally as well as lead if I would have really attacked him. So I'm 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 thankful in that moment yeah. that I um I had the discernment to just be peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. Give thanks. Give thanks. I think that's something that is is important. There, there's there's a there's a difference between um, docility and sacrificing your dignity. Like I think that's not the that's not the moral of the story. It's understanding what is in your best interest, and sometimes blowing your top. You know, it's like you know the classic line is chestnut checkers. Like blowing your top and losing your temper, that could be a checkers move and not a chess move. And so we need we need to be mindful of 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 how we move through this world and 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 how do we set ourselves up for success long term, um, and. The off of that, you know, the next question I want to ask, what is your personal definition of success? It doesn't need to be agreed to by anyone else, but like when you look at your life, what is your personal definition of a success? Personal definition of success is simply the achievement of a goal. And um, so, you know, and, and excellence is meeting expectations. So set a goal. I achieve the goal. I have success. And then making sure that whatever success I'm having, that that it will allow me to impact at least a thousand people immediately, directly or indirectly. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's it's not worthwhile success for me. Um, and then you know the 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 two things that could prevent that again, the, my definition of the achievement of a goal is: Am I being stupid? Because if I'm being stupid, I'm not going to achieve it. And then what are my struggles? What, what are the mistakes that I'm making out of 
ignorance that can prevent me from having success. Mm. I dig it. I dig it. Um, if you were to describe your journey, your life's journey in one word, what would it be? Convicting. Mm. Say, say more like about, about convicting. I've, I've heard you use that several times through, throughout uh, this conversation. And I want to make sure that the listeners get where yeah, you're coming so, from. Um, you know, there's a distinction between conviction and guilt. And so, you know, guilt paralyzes you and conviction empowers you. And so, mm. you know, I've just had convicting moments where I've been called out for wrongdoing based on stupid things that I was doing, but also called out based on uh, mistakes that I was making out of ignorance. And so either, either way, um, you know, just case in point, like what, you know, with lead um, came out of Atlanta, supported my, my parents and other people in the community, you know, kind of guided me on the, on the way and flunked out of college and all this good stuff, get drafted by the Cubs twice, play professional baseball, come back, start coaching kids, got really good, really fast. And, 10 years in, I'm not even thinking about working with black kids whatsoever in general, because my thought is that black people don't have money at all, which is ridiculous, uh, let alone what they invested in their kids in baseball. So this is my, my thinking, but I felt like I had that level of thinking because I was, I was in a white environment where people were investing money. And I just didn't know how to balance those two realities. So I had to choose the white reality and just shut off everything that was um, that was black so that I can be safe and conform to, you know, to white people. And so Stan Conway, a white man who's a um, who was the father of one of my middle school age uh, white clients. Uh, he convicted me one day and just said, hey, there's a decline of blacks in baseball and you're not doing anything about it. And so that wasn't guilt. Uh. guilt if, if I would have felt guilty about that, then I would have doubled down on being in a white community and not going to the black community at all and just justifying it. Well, you know, black kids don't play baseball and, you know, black people ain't got money and all of this and all this stuff. But because I was convicted by that, it empowered me to really start to like, look deeper and understand because guess what not all white people got money i had white people that were bounce, bouncing checks even in my right. profit business it started making me look deeper mm -hmm. started making me think about my life as a black person and um you know I, these things that i did not have in, in my family and so on and so forth and i was just like you know rather than being embarrassed by this stuff i mean you know even though my parents didn't have a whole lot of money i mean they were resilient and resourceful and even now living middle-class uh, lifestyle. So conviction empowers and guilt paralyzes. So when I look at my life, even now, it's the convicting moments that let me know that Christ is in my life and the Holy Spirit sustaining me so that I can keep going, even though I'm hurt by being corrected and, and I'm angry that you corrected me, but I can keep going because I was convicted. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. That's a, it's a great testimony. And the last thing that I, uh, uh, last question I have for you today is 
with all the trials and tribulation that comes with being a black man, especially in this racialized society we live in, there's a lot of great things that come with it as well. And it's something that I personally would never give up for anything in the world if I could. Um, what do you love most about being a black man? I love the fact that I come from a, a people that are, um, that have grit. Grit is, you know, I define as the, the relentless pursuit of purpose. Um, you know, I, I feel like, um, I feel like we are the salt of the earth. I mean, we are, we, you know, people of color are the global majority anyway. Uh, here in this country, we are not uh, the majority, but we built this country. Uh, and we are the, uh-huh. um, you know, even when I think about it from a biblical standpoint and just, you know, you know Christ will come back and he'll um, remove Christians before the rapture and then, you know, all, all hell will break loose. If you remove black people from this country right now, this country is not going to be strong. Uh, yes, all lives matter, but black lives matter to me firstly because the the before race is about before racism is about people, it's about power. And most of the power are in the hands of white people and specifically white men. And so racism becomes about people when you break us down by race. And when you think about a race, a literal race, take off and run, and then who's somebody's first, somebody's last, somebody's second, somebody's third. African-Americans have been last since the beginning of this country. And we are still last. I mean, we're the dead last. So with that being said, when I when I wake up in the morning, and, and I'm making sure I'm in right relationship with God. I'm checking to make sure my wife is in good relationship. And then my oldest daughter, Mackenzie, my youngest daughter, McKenna, then I'm immediately thinking about the plight of black boys, then black men, then black people in general, including women, uh, and, and then all people. Like for me, that's, that's my level of focus. Now, my, my black wife is focused on black women. And so my job is to support her um, in those efforts. But for me, I'm thinking about as a black man, how do I get black boys intentionally set up to be successful? But with all that being said, I mean, black people, we have grit and I love it. A relentless pursuit of purpose. And we are going to win and we're going to, we're going to have some amazing strides. I believe in my lifetime, God willing, I live to, to live several more decades. We're, we're going to win. We're going to do well. And, and our ability to win is going to make this country win. This country will not be great until the lives of millions of black people are great. And I'm talking about living a sustainable life of significance. Black people, forget about success. I'm talking about significance. I'm talking about mm-hmm. to the point where your ability to walk in a room is an is a yes. You walk into the room and people are trying to figure out what to do. The fact that you walked into the room means yes, we're gonna do it. You don't even have to talk. The fact that your name is on the paper, mm. that's the kind of power that I want to be able to have to where the fact that a black boy could have my name on a reference letter and his grades are not good enough to get into this college. The fact that he's connected with me gets him admission that happens for other races and so i want to be able to live the kind of life to where i can get power empower that young man and move to a place 
we're we're past mentorship. Like black youth in Atlanta are over mentored and under sponsored. And when I say when I say sponsorship, I'm not talking mm. about just money. I'm talking about being able to create mm-hmm. a space where a black boy, I can mentor you and teach you some stuff. Then I can allow you to be an apprentice of mine and then sponsor you, meaning putting you in situations that you do not deserve, that you are not ready for, and allow you to make mistakes until you figure it out. That's what I, mm. that's what I want to be a part of, and that's mm. what my wife Kelly and I are doing with lead in Atlanta using baseball as a vehicle to do it. And we scout out black boys that are struggling with grades, attendance, and behavior that live at and below the, the poverty level. So if you're black and you're highly motivated and you got a 4.0, you can be with us, but our program is not for you. It is focused on those boys that are right. struggling, and um, we can't we can't serve you if you're stupid. If you're stupid and you're knowingly doing things yep. like bringing drugs into our environment, bringing weapons into our environment, bringing crime, we're not set up to serve you. But if you're struggling, if you're struggling, we are. Right, right. I, I love it, man. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on Bootstraps, share your story, to share your wisdom, to share your success, to share the moments which you've been convicted right that's then compelled you to go and continue to do the work that you're doing it's it's absolutely amazing and uh yeah man i'm looking forward to watching your work continue to grow over the years man if there's ways in which um you know i can help awesome thank you so much for the assignment and um this is great and this was um i'm actually um i feel a little I feel a little worn worn out man i feel like i gave my all but i just feel like the questions that you asked me brought out the, the the best of me and I'm looking forward to um remaining connected with you. So thank you for this assignment.